Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gayomago land by me, Liam Miller. He, him, he is a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is supported by Uniting Mission and Education, part of the Synod of New South Wales ACT, and I thank them for their support. Uh, my guest today is Leah Devon. Leah, well, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so for those who don't know, Leah is the Associate Professor of History and Vice Chair for Undergraduate Education at Rutgers uh, University. Uh, her, her research focuses on the history of gender, sexuality, science in medicine, pre-modern Europe, as well as on contemporary queer and transgender studies. Uh, we're going to talk about this new book, which I don't usually have them on the e-version, but I'm going to hold it up anyway, The Shape of Sex, Non-Binary Gender, from Genesis to the Renaissance, uh, which is out with Columbia University Press, New York, uh, which is a really exciting and fascinating book. And uh, I, I, I mentioned this uh, to you before, Leah, that, that uh, I, I tweeted out that I was, I'm just realizing now I wasn't looking at the screen. You cannot see that at all, can you, when I held that up? <laughs> um, that I, I tweeted out that I was going to be talking to you about this book and, and a friend just was like, oh, wow, like that just sounds so fascinating. Um, and and so let's just, let's just go with a broad picture here. What got you interested in this idea of a book to um, – this idea to research and, and uh, yeah, what, what are your kind of hopes as you kind of uh, dove into it? Sure. Well, why don't I just give a few seconds about what the book is about just uh, for people who are not familiar with it at all. And then I'll back up and talk a little bit how I, how I got into it in the first place. Uh, So, um, so the shape of sex is a book that is about ideas and uh, individuals who were thought to cross the boundary between male and female sex and gender in Europe uh, between the years of about 200 and 1400. So, um, I look at a lot of different kinds of texts in the book, um, texts that are by theologians, by um, natural philosophers, cartographers, uh, physicians, lawyers. Um, So I'm casting my net pretty widely in terms of both the kind of texts that I'm looking at and and in terms of the time frame, which is also pretty big. So the kind of big picture argument of the book is I look at the ways in which thinkers during that time period developed um, and upheld a binary system of sexual difference. That is the idea that male and female are the only legitimate natural sexes that humans can belong to. And so what I argue is that this uh, is something that happened in a particular place in a particular time uh, that was in response to, you know, the particular historical circumstances. So that shows us that um, that binary sex is a historical phenomenon. That is, um, you know, it depends on time and place and it's not just uh, a timeless or unchanging or natural division of humankind. Um, I also show how during this period, people used ideas about non-binary sex to not just create um, a division between male and female, but also to organize their um, political worlds, their religious worlds, their natural worlds, uh, coming up with uh, a, a, a big structure of putting in order their societies and deciding who was able to be considered human and accepted as like a protected member of the human community. So that's kind of the, the mm. overview of what the book is about and how I got into it. I mean, I have a long history of being interested in, in medicine and uh, the way that medicine uh, and science are um, 
are uh, reflect ideas about gender and sexuality and religion going back to when I was a, a pre-med student back, um, as an undergraduate and and I'm happy to come back to that um, but in terms of the specific book um, my first book looked at ideas about alchemy. So I had spent a lot of time looking at manuscripts of alchemy. And alchemy in this case was something that was uh, trying to not just um, create gold, but create medicines for humans. So I was looking at alchemy as really kind of like a, a forerunner of, of pharmacology. And in a lot of the alchemical manuscripts that I was looking at for my first book, I kept encountering ideas about an alchemical hermaphrodite. That is an idea that there was some kind of special substance that transformed people that was um, imagined to be non-binary sex. Hmm. And so it kept striking me, you know, why did uh, these, um, these alchemists who are so interested in human health, who are so interested in societal transformation, imagine the transformative substance that they were talking about as hmm. a non-binary sexed figure. And at this very same time period that I was seeing these images, my partner, who is transgender, had top surgery, um, which is a kind of a gender affirming surgery. So kind of all of these links in my professional world and my personal world were kind of all coming together to focus me very closely on ideas about bodies, on um, categories, um, on identities. And, um, and that's when I turned to thinking about, you know, how do we get a binary system of sexual division and how... Um, you know, how does it reflect all the different kind of cultural concerns that um, that are in place over a long period of time and kind of what are the consequences of that, of that kind of idea of division? Mm. So that, that's how I, that's how we got here. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. That's, that's really cool. Thank you for that. Um, I think yeah, one of the things that is interesting, as you say, is that just how widespread this consideration was, because because we're so often like bombarded with this idea that you know, oh, consideration of of gender outside of the binary, or even this idea that there could be an outside of binary, um, is is like you know a, a novel later twentieth, early twentieth century kind of idea. But what you're showing is like even though a lot of the times the considerations maybe weren't very much focused on actual individuals. That these this idea of non-binary sex, this idea of um, th those you know outside of this binary, was you know prolific, right, and across a lot of different fields. And as you say, it was not just like sometimes this kind of periphery thought, but was like actually like a kind of key organizing category for for yes, yeah, much bigger discussions. Uh, and we're going to get into a, quite a lot of that. Um, but I guess yeah, I, I mean. Were you surprised about maybe almost that you kept finding things? And I guess was there anything in particular that during the research you were like, "Oh, I just would have that." That's the true like surprising find of the of of the time. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, all of those things. Um, um, the first, the first thing that that I often note is, you know, we tend to think of. Um, you know, non-binary sex is sort of a, a marginal or a rare concern. And uh, sort of my first surprise was how many places I found uh, discussions of non-binary sex across so many different kinds of texts and across so many different centuries. So I think that really, um, you know, challenges our idea that these figures are, are rare, that they're not really talked about, um, and that they, you know, they just kind of um, are at the periphery of society. When really, um, you know, I found so many of these figures, I wasn't even able to include them all in my, you know, my hundreds of pages of text. I could come up with a, you know, volume two. There are so many of these kinds of yeah. figures. Um, and beyond that, 
the fact that, um, you know, even, even in the ways that they, um, you know, they, they do appear in, in short snippets of text in some cases, they intervene in histories that, um, you know, we consider really central to how we understand, um, you know, this, uh, this long and critical time period in Europe. And, uh, and in, in fact, um, encompass some of the, the major historical developments and historical um, actors or, or figures in some mm. cases that we associate with the period. I mean, for instance, I would say one of the most surprising figures that I found associated with non-binary sex was the Jesus, so-called Jesus hermaphrodite, the non-binary sex uh, Jesus. So incredibly surprising in as much as, um, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, this, I mean, undeniably central figure in the history of Christianity and the history of Europe, of Europe uh, and beyond, you know, was ever imagined as something beyond just simply male, mm. um, you know, comes as a big surprise to a lot of people. Uh, and I think it also shows us that um, these sorts of ideas are ones that, uh, you know, they can't really be ignored as we look at a broader history of Europe because uh, ideas about non-binary sex are implicated in how people configured not just maleness and femaleness, but how they came up with an identity of Europe, how they figured who was a Christian, who was allowed to be within the community, how it affected relationships between Christians and Jews during critical, um, um, you know, critical uh, moments in, um, in interreligious relations during critical moments in, um, in the political contests that um, were surrounding the Near East that we, um, uh, we often now call the Crusades. So, you know, these are, these are ideas that may at first seem small, but when we look at them in terms of these um, big narratives, they play um, a, you know, more pivotal role than we might expect. So, um, you know, I think that those are all important reasons to look at this history. And beyond that, I think another really important thing for everyone to take away is that uh, in the modern world, um, we, and I mean by that, not just the general public, but also those of us who are members of, um, you know, queer and trans and non-binary communities tend to think of gender nonconformity, um, non-binary gender, uh, trans uh, as all new, right? Mm -hmm. And this is an argument that's often made, uh, you know, uh, by those who are, um, who are anti-trans by those who are trans exclusionary, that gender nonconformity is um, a threat to traditional gender. Mm. And part of what I try to do in my book is show that gender nonconformity, that non-binary categories of gender have been with us for a very long time. They're not new. Mm. And um, we can't go back to a period of time before non-binary gender when you know people were just simply male or simply female. These mm. kinds of um, ideas, individuals and debates about what these categories of sex mean uh, for society. Uh, you know, they've been with us for, you know, for as far yeah. back as I go and probably farther. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think that we'll, we'll come back to a bit about that and particularly how that um, yeah, impacts today uh, toward the end. I think that's a really important um, discovery as, 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 as you push this, um, push this argument through. Uh, I want to pick up maybe on where you were talking about a bit there around the, the the change in the 12th and the 13th century, and, and particularly about that, um, those, you know, um, the way non-binary sex um, played a part in the kind of yeah, in the in those kind of relationships between Christians and Jews and Christians and Muslims. Um, that there was, you know, this it was it, the, how it was utilized in this project of kind of establishing you know, almost a non-human other, you know, you were talking before about how like this isn't just about categories of male and female, it becomes, you know, engaged in a lot of other bigger categories. Um, 
So, yeah, and then and how that obviously, you know, whenever you want to create a non-human other, it's usually because you're trying to um, get to violence. Um, and, 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 and I guess, as you say, kind of get to establishing who can live in a, a Christian territory. Um, so you keep talking to us a bit. Let's, let's kind of dive in a bit more into uh, that kind of part of the book and, and, yeah, and how this kind of gets employed and weaponized in these kind of, um, yes, in these, in these uh, interfaith, you know, geographic conflicts. Sure. I mean, I think that the the um, key shift we start to see for this kind of um, uh, these kinds of um, polemics and this language that's anti-Muslim or anti-Jewish and using binary sex figures as part of the you know derogatory picture of mm. those groups by Christians um, is uh, during the period of um, uh, wars over the Holy Land, you know, the Crusades, so to say, and um, and also in the events um, that. Uh, uh, came before the um, expulsion of Jews from Christian communities in in Europe um, around the thir- uh, turn of the thir- I'm sorry around uh, 1300. So um, what we see during these time periods is we begin to see images of Jews and Muslims as so-called hermaphrodites or as um, as figures that were imagined to um, shift back and forth between male and female sex, um, and that these were part of polemics that were intended to dehumanize and insult Muslim and Jewish communities. Uh, So just to take one example, there's um, an English map called the Hereford map that was created in about 1300. And um, it's an interesting document for a lot of reasons. And it has a lot of crusading propaganda, we might say, um, that's a part of it. Mm -hmm. And one of the images that it has on it is an image of um, of a Muslim as half male and half female in Africa, um, along with a little caption that um, tells us that um, this individual is part of a race of both sexes who are uh, unnatural. Um, And it's tapping into this um, long myth about the so-called monstrous races. Um, And this was a myth that was present in Europe, um, you know, since antiquity that imagined that outside of Europe, especially in Africa and Asia, there were people who were, um, you know, whole whole communities of people who were monsters. That is, they were, um, you know, their bodies were um, extraordinarily different from, you know, so-called ordinary Europeans and their cultural practices, especially their sexual practices, were also kind of outside the bounds of human behavior. So, Anyone who's going to be looking at that image of um, a Muslim in Africa being depicted as this traditional image of a non-human sort of monster um, and one who, you know, they're going to be aware is attached to this kind of idea of sex changing. You know, that's going to be a very derogatory, Mm. um, very, um, uh, you know, very uh, dehumanizing kind of image of Muslims at a time when, um, you know, uh, Christian um, uh, military incursions into Muslim areas are ongoing, yeah, you know, and yeah. so this is, uh, you know, scholars have seen this as, as, you know, rationalization for violence against communities that are depicted as non-human, as well as, um, you know, ways of showing that they belong outside of the geographical bounds of Christian society. So, you know, 
uh, in that way, rationalizing um, Christians taking over these territories and expunging them of non-Christians. So, you know, we just have to look at this as part of a rhetoric that is about religion, but I think it's also about bodies and bodily difference too. So, I, you know, I think that uh, one of the things that has been useful for me has been thinking about, you know, how we fit the history of gender and sex into a, a um, extended history of race, how we make hierarchies between people based on um, sort of a nexus of cultural and physical differences that um, that also uh, allow people to um, uh, you know to place societies in hierarchical orders and to um, to justify these kinds of um, uh, you know, uh, violent and exclusionary sorts of actions against others. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, so then moving out of that time period, kind of in both directions, because, uh, you know, there's that, as you say, that dehumanizing use there, there, but there are other uses uh, through this time period. And so you kind of have on both sides, I'm thinking of the, you kind of talk about the early Christian ideas of this kind of um, Adam androgyny, that, you know, the idea that the Adam, the Adam figure um, was before male was a kind of, um, was either you know genderless or both gender and then, and then and that's kind of this in a lot of these texts this kind of idealized um, human form um, and then on the other side you have uh, of this um, period you have what you were talking about earlier the um, Jesus hermaphrodite um, and and you kind of talk about them as these um, like anchors of the eschatological age the Adam and, and the Christ figure both being envisioned um, in, you know you know in a not a negative way as as non-binary sex bodies um so you don't have to kind of tackle them both but it, or at the same time but you know I'm, yeah. I'm interested in th those are you know quite as you said surprising um uh things to be exploring um so yeah talk a bit about that and I guess how that maybe then shaped maybe or did that then permeate out into broader attitudes to people um with differently sex bodies or did, or did it kind of just stay in this kind of level of the um an idealized religious kind of figure. Right. Okay. Well, I have a lot of things to yeah, say about. Sorry, that was too many questions. <laughs> no, no. So, I mean, the first point that I want to make is that you know one of the things that this shows is that there isn't one unchanging idea about mm. sex and gender categories. Right. We can just see in the time period that I'm looking at that ideas about um, uh, about non-binary sex uh, a, a change enormously over the time period that I cover, right? I mean, yeah. you can see how, uh, you know, um, well, you know, I hate to boil things down to positive and negative, but, you know, we can see that, you know, there's a kind of waxing and waning uh, set of ideas about, uh, about binary sex. So, I mean, that again speaks to the idea that different cultures over different time periods have vastly different approaches to how they categorize and make meaning of sex and gender, right? So again, going to the point that this isn't, this isn't sort of a natural changeless way of thinking about humankind, you know, and so hence that might give us some humility of thinking about how the way we categorize and think about sex and gender might be similarly just a part of a waxing and waning that's going to you know, continue to change in the future. Um, okay, uh, so um, another thing I think is that um, when we then tend to think of the distant past, if I, if I can kind of generalize a bit, we tend to think of it as more brutal, more restrictive, um, you know, more 
um, marginalizing of, um, of difference, right? That's often assumed to be the case. So I think one of the surprises is that um, during this period that I look at, non-binary sex was not always something to be corrected, to be erased, to be um, denigrated. Sometimes it was imagined to be something that was not just neutral, but ideal, something that could be associated with angels, with Adam, with Jesus, you know, with some of the most um, celebrated, rarefied kind of characters of, of excellence um, during the time period. So, you know, we can't make any assumptions about, um, you know, about the way that um, non-binary sex is, is received because, you know, we can see that there's um, a huge amount of variation and that that um, that includes some perhaps surprises for us about, um, you know, how we might compare to earlier societies in terms of our own um, imagination of, um, of the meanings of non-binary sex. Uh, so, so as you say, um, you know, the book begins and ends with an idealized sort of non-binary character. Uh, the first one is um, the so-called primal androgen. And this is the idea that some Jewish and Christian interpreters of the Bible had um, in reading the creation stories in Genesis that made them imagine that God created the first human as an androgen or um, um, a man-woman, right? A combination of male and female characteristics that was something beyond binary divisions. So the, um, the theologians and biblical commentators who, uh, who seized upon that idea imagined that the original most perfected uh, characteristic of humans when they were closest to the image of God was one that hadn't yet been split into male and female separate sexes, right? And that the division of humans into those sexes was kind of like a devolution from biblical perfection. And for some of them, they argued that they came after the fall into sin. So for them, the idea of binary male and female sex was the fallen sort of broken type of, um, you know, of human nature, whereas the more perfected human nature as it was intended by God was undifferentiated, non-binary, you know, not, um, uh, not uh, given to, you know, sexual intercourse and difference. Okay. So, you know, and we can talk more about how, what the kind of um, uh, fates of that idea were, but it's one that, you know, continued to have, um, you know, uh, uh, people who, um, who argued for it for over a thousand years. So, uh, you know, this continued to be an attractive um, way of thinking about creation. So when people start thinking about what's the perfect form of the human, you know, what is the form that we started with? What is the form that we return to, right, at the, at the eschaton, at the end of time? Again, they start to imagine that perfection in terms of non-binary sex, um, non-binary um, bodies. And we can see that both in the terms of um, what you just mentioned, the Jesus hermaphrodite, and that is towards the end of the period, we start to see... Um, not just in alchemy, as I as I mentioned at the beginning, but also in devotional texts and other kinds of literature, a sort of picture of Jesus as um, both masculine and feminine, um, and as well as both human and divine. And thinking about that in terms of a non-binary sex or a non-binary figure was a way for them to imagine the sort of sloughing off of these divisions, you know, this returning to a sort of like divine simplicity. And they imagined that in, in terms of this figure. 
these ideas about what we return to, what's the most ideal form of the human also comes up in, um, in uh, theologies of the resurrection. So I think what's important to say is that when, um, you know, certain Christians over a long period of time imagined like what the perfect form of the human was, they imagined it as without sex and gender that was divided into maleness and femaleness. Oh, I can't hear you. <laughs> oh, sorry, I had muted myself. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> uh, so, um, and again, that goes fascinating to the point of what you say when this kind of ever novelty, ever newness of what we, when we claim what you know these discussions. Um, so I'm curious that, uh, just a bit about that more. That so there's this idea of a is is it always kind of this link of a non-binary sex body in that way, and also then a non-sexed body, as in like. Um, by by getting rid of that division, you also get rid of you know the need for sex or the the reality of actually having sex. Um, are they kind of like you know? And obviously, because you know, particular periods and places of Christianity, chastity and monasticism and things like that are are, are so highly valued as well. Is it is it um, are that are those, are those kind of always kind of coupled together? And the and similarly, Jesus you know isn't um, you know depicted as, as someone who has sex. So is, is there a similarly kind of a linking between um, if you remove that kind of binary, you also then remove, you know, a desire to to be with someone um, sexually. Yeah. I mean, I talk about a lot of different kinds of non-binary categories in the book. Mm. So, uh, so I'm talking about um, uh, individuals who we would now call intersex, right? People whose bodies aren't um, typically... Um, uh, simply just male or female, right? I'm also talking about uh, people who are imagined to um, transgress or change gender um, in terms of their practices or their identity in some way. We might put that under the transgender umbrella. I could talk more about that. I'm also talking about uh, what we might now categorize as asexual or agender kinds of categories, as well mm. as a, a number of other ones, putting them all under the non-binary umbrella for the purposes of my book. I think you're right that when theologians were thinking about sort of divine perfection in terms of, um, of these sexualized categories, they were thinking often not, not of, um, you know, non-binary as, you know, um, a doubling of, of sexes, although some of them were, but, um, but many of them were talking about a sort of erasure of all difference, like an undifferentiation um, that, yes, um, placed people um, outside of, um, of uh, you know, the temptations of sexual desire, of the kinds of um, social divisions and hierarchies that um, accompanied marriage and patriarchy and, um, and, you know, many kind of the, uh, um, the sort of um, institutional powers that were based on those kinds of divisions, mm. but they weren't generally imagining it in terms of equality. Like, you know, there's a lot of variability here, but uh, many of these people were thinking of it as sort of like an androgyny that was male inflected where femininity is kind of subsumed into this sort of like masculinized, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sexuality erased androgyny. So, uh, you know, I, you know, these are not feminist texts <laughs> for right, the yeah. most part, you know, they are, they're texts that um, are uh, suspicious of, um, of sexual difference and sexuality. Um, not in every case, but but certainly in some of these cases, they are imagining the perfect human society as being one freed from uh, the constraints 
of, uh, of both sexual desire, but also gender obligations, right? The gendered obligations of um, uh, that um, imposed um, social commitments. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, but I think what's really interesting is just to note that, you know, even in the face of all this kind of variability in these different thinkers in these different time periods, when people start thinking about like, what's a perfect society, like the society of heaven, what's a perfect society like paradise before the fall, mm-hmm. they're imagining it as free of gender constraints, as mm-hmm. something beyond the binary. And I just think that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that that really is. So, so obviously the book covers, you know, this a long span of time. Um, and as you say, there's this waxing and waning and there's lots of difference. Um, if you were to now, you know, or if not you, someone were to now like really dive into one of those periods, like what, what do you think is the one you most want to see? Like I want to see its own full large book tome length treatment on, on one of these ones. Which do you think is like, you know, you'd really like to see like um, either yourself or other uh, historians and scholars um, start to dig into that you think either has been under uh, examined or or this has the most like that you were like oh I can't believe I have to cut this. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I just want to um, you know take this opportunity to um, to really um, uh, praise and celebrate so much work that's now being done by um, queer and trans and non-binary historians and others too to mm. um, look at this material. I think there's just been. Um, a huge explosion of interest and um, really excellent writing uh, in um, transgender and non-binary history. And um, so, you know, there are topics that I wish I had gotten to, but I'm so uh, pleased to see that so many people are getting to them yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and and doing it in, in, in wonderful ways. Um, I think of M.W. Bachowski's uh, new work that's, uh, I, I, um, I mean, she has lots of work coming out all the time, but I believe she's working on a book um, on um, a lot of uh, individuals who we might, uh, you know, put under the transgender umbrella. Um, people like Eleanor Reichner, who I, I only get to briefly in my book. Um, uh, I, I think Joan of Arc as well, you know, uh, uh, figures that that certainly deserve to be uh, looked at through through the lens of all the kind of new um, uh, theories and and, um, and and historical scholarship that's been growing over this last decade. Uh, there's a new work by Robert Mills, um, Roland Betancourt, um, uh, Alice um, Spencer Hall and Blake Gutt um, on transgender saints that I think is really fascinating work. So I, I think that uh, even with um, as as big as my project felt to me, there's there was still so much that I wasn't able to cover, and that um, like I said, I'm just really gratified to see so much new work coming out, and also the ways that scholars who are working on later periods are really connecting, um, you know, uh, these earlier periods to um, to how we now think about a developing sense of. Um, of, of gender identity, of gender practice, and really uh, being able to place uh, all of um, uh, our, our kind of current debates into a much greater historical framework, which I just think is uh, really great for the field. Uh, and um, and I really look forward to being able to read the new work that's coming out. So if I could do more, I would have done some of those things, but I don't yeah. need to because, right. <laughs> because we'll, we'll just be able to look forward to all these new works coming out. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, you kind of started to answer it there, but I think uh, almost any time I have a historian on the podcast, I just ask them, you know, at some point, why study the past? Um, but as you started to kind of develop this, and we've talked a bit throughout, um, you know, there's kind of almost two two trajectories of, of of why in the book. In some sense, there's the what we've talked about is saying, like, look, this has been a conversation topic. <laughs> this is not new. It's not, you know, um, the first time that people have considered non-binary sex. You know, it's not the first time this has happened. Um, and as you say, and it's not only ever been in a kind of totally denigrating, dehumanising manner either. Um, and then I guess also there's this sense of thus that should disrupt and disturb any kind of claims of kind of naturalness or immutability that are often evoked in contemporary debates, right? That, that there's, that that the views of gender we inherited from say 30 years ago, 40, 50, um, you know, are these natural ones that have always existed and never deigned to be questioned. Um, And, and, and yeah, and and this kind of, you know, the, the, the often leveling of the ever newness uh, I was trying to find it before. There was a great review I, I read on about um, Tori Peters' transition baby, which was talking about like so much of the rhetoric around that as always being like the first, um, and that there's always this claim of everything you know trans is always new. Um, and so, but like you know, here you're kind of like, you know undercutting that through through the study of history by showing you know it's not ever new. Um, it actually exists within you know. There's a much more contested, broad, diverse trajectory. So. Um, so yeah, I guess, you know, thinking a bit about, you know, why write the book and, and why study the past, uh, in terms of the current context. Um, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts of how much that played in your mind as you were going, um, and, and how it kind of, what you're hoping that those who are reading this book, which is going to be all my listeners, everyone, um, is, uh, you know, what, how that might shape some of the, the thinking about, uh, the present and future. Yeah, I mean, this is always the tension that historians face, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, um, past as, um, you know, as resonant with, as anticipating the present and past as like radical difference, right? And the thing that is, um, that makes it difficult to to pick between those two different ways of interpreting history is that they're, they're, they're both there, right? Um, I mean, you know, I think, uh, you know, you know, it's kind of the cliche of the history book, the moment that everything changed. Right. And, uh, (laughs) and, uh, I, I think that my work is kind of like on the opposite end. It's the 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 way many things never change, you know, as well as, um, yeah. as as you know, change is happening and will continue to happen. Uh, so you know, I think that uh, the way that we can look at at the past um, and and uh, you know, even in this very distant period that I focused on, we can see a lot that looks familiar. You know, we can see in um, in the legal handling of um, non-binary uh, sex and gender. We can see in the kind of medical management of intersex patients in the pre-modern period a lot that we can see happening in our own in our own time. And so, I think where we can see these similarities. Uh, you know, that they do give us some insight into why we think the way we do and why we do some of the things that we do. And so, um, you know, that uh, that continuity can 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 help us to place ourselves in time. Um, I think on the flip side, where we see things as totally unfamiliar, as done a completely different way, um, that can that can help us to to understand that there isn't one way. Right. There's no um, there's no one 
correct understanding. Um, there's no correct version of systematizing these ideas. And, um, and that's, that's probably going to mean that things are gonna be radically different, you know, 50 or hundred years from now. Uh, so, I, and I think that um, the other side of that, um, you know, thinking about continuity and what do I want the, the book to do is um, by seeing that these ideas that these individuals have have been around for this long period of time, I, I think that um, you know, as as historians and activists um, in um, marginalized communities have long tried to show, uh, trans, queer, non-binary, um, intersex people, um, they have a history, mm. and I hope that that can. Uh, and and for many of us, that can help us to kind of find uh, a place for ourselves across time, can find kinship across time, um, and and sort of a meaningfulness of um, of of our, our of a place in the present. Uh, also, um, you know, for for many people in society, history is a legitimating force. So to say this has existed in the past is a way of um, of being able to claim that these individuals have a place in the present, they have a place in the future. Uh, you know, and while we don't, we don't need, uh, you know, those who oppose um, human rights to, um, you know, we don't need them to legitimate yeah. the existence of, of these marginalized communities. Uh, you know, uh, we can't deny that that is a rhetorical force that's important. So, um, so I hope that, that this work will, will continue to lay a foundation for, um, for making claims for the, um, uh, the legitimacy and presence and, um, and, and the defense of non-binary lives in, in the present and the future. Thank you so much uh, for this conversation. And thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, that final word was so helpful. So the book, I'm not going to try to hold it up to the screen again because clearly... Oh, I have one. Oh, right, hold it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, the book... Pull it off the shelf. Yeah, we got to have it. We got to have a look at the actual cover. <laughs> the book, folks, is The Shape of Sex, Non-Binary Gender from Genesis to the Renaissance out with Columbia University Press. Uh, please go pick it up. Um, call your libraries, get them to get it. Um, you know, really, let's get the, uh, let's get that happening. Uh, Lee, is there anything else you want to promote or draw people's attention to uh, at this time? Yeah, um, I just want to say that in addition to um, being a historian who writes academic texts, I'm also an artist and a curator who um, works with the histories of um, uh, queer, feminist, gender nonconforming communities, and I try in that capacity to um, also create opportunities for, um, for all of those communities to be able to represent themselves through their own artwork, through their own abilities to, um, uh, to, to, uh, to show and speak about themselves and, you know, and to be able to counter um, discourse that's always written about them um, you know, by other people. So I guess I will just promote um, the other kind of work that I do in the yeah. artistic world that's in collaboration with a, a lot of different individuals and communities and that I hope can bring some of these ideas to a different sort of audience that maybe is not going to pick up an academic book, but maybe will go into a community space or um, some kind of um, arts um, uh, venue and be able to learn about these um, these ideas and debates in a way that will make them want to delve further into um, into this whole set of questions. That's awesome. That sounds so cool. Um, that's great. Uh, well, thank you so much for this conversation again. Uh, everyone go and get the book. 
and and I'll see you all next week. Bye. Thank you so much.